Hey, how we doing? Grab your Bibles, turn to Numbers 12. Turn to Numbers 12. I just got back from um, the longest vacation that I've taken since we started the church. Kristen and I were gone for two weeks, and uh, we drove from, flew out to San Diego a couple Sundays ago, and um, then flew back from Seattle. So we slowly worked our way up the coast for about two weeks from San Diego to Seattle. It was a gorgeous drive. People are like, hey, how did you guys get along for two weeks? Just you two. And it was like, we get along great. I mean, that, this is, we, we look forward to getting away, being on our own. We get along really, really well. Kristen never gets grumpy. Um, I didn't get very grumpy on this trip. So, so we got along good. If you were praying for us, thank you on that. Um, the only thing we fight about, quite honestly, is, is music. And uh, as you're driving in a car and you're on these long drives, we typically listen to worship music because we can agree on that. But for a break as you're driving, I'll put in my music. And I have really, really good musical taste. I just do. And um, the music that I like to listen to, if I'm not listening to worship music, is music like um, the Zac Brown Band. Or I'll listen to bands like The Script or One Republic or Chainsmokers, like, like good stuff. Okay, and um, after a little while of this, Kristen would be like, oh, it's, it's my turn. And um, Air Supply, uh, the Bee Gees, Hall of Notes. And I'm like, yes, um, but that's been outlawed. Um, they're, 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 we, we, there's certain rules, there's certain limits. But that's what she likes to listen to. And as I'm driving down the coast, I'm like, if I took a hard left into the Pacific, I don't think anybody would like blame me um, for, for this. But um, no, we, we had a really, really good time. And as I think about it, I wish we'd been gone three weeks, not two. If I could do it again, that's the only thing I would change. I would do three weeks, not two. I wouldn't have stopped in Seattle and I would have drove all the way up to Anchorage, Alaska. I would have flown back from Anchorage because that would have meant that I didn't have to preach this morning on Numbers 12. Because what we've got in front of us in Numbers 12 as we continue this series on tearing down strongholds is a very, very difficult passage for me to preach because it deals with the stronghold, which is a rebellious heart. I was here three weeks ago before the vacation. I preached uh, Numbers 11. I'm just a chapter later um, in the book of Numbers, and that was on grumbling and complaining. And, and, and now we go into the progression of a rebellious heart that is in Numbers 12. And you just need to know this. By nature, um, I'm, I'm a rebellious guy. I look back when, when I was just a little kid, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. I was going to a Christian school. I was going to a Baptist church. And my best friends were the kids of the Baptist pastor <laughs> because they were the most devious, obviously. Okay? And... Um, we would do things like, like, like one of the things that we like to do in the summer when we couldn't come up with anything else to do, we would take our, our, our G.I. Joes and our little toy cars and we would set them up in an intersection and we would stage an accident. Um, sometimes we would light it on fire um, and then we would go to a payphone and call 911 and report the accident at the intersection which we had just set up and then we would hide in the bushes in the woods and wait for the police and the fire trucks to show up. Um, just how I'm wired. I played um, soccer for four years at what's now Cornerstone University. If you could find my coach today and you asked him about me or you mentioned my name, it wouldn't take him long to tell you I was one of the most difficult players he ever coached, for sure. By the time I was 25, 
Um, I'd already been married. I got married when I was 18. Kristen and I eloped. Nobody's going to tell me who I can date and who I can marry. By the time I was 25, I'd started my own consulting firm. I was my own boss. I was working for myself. By the time I was 35, I was kind of at the height of my professional career. I was a developer in Chicago and in and around Chicago in the suburbs. I had three different developments going, um, each over 50 million, and I was financially secure. I was independent. Um, I was unyielding. I worked for my father-in-law at the time. He had been very, very successful. And if you would have talked to my father-in-law about what I was like in my 30s, he would have said, um, always questioning, always an antagonist, always challenging. That's just who I was. And um, when I was 35 years old, he died. He passed away. And when he passed away, he put me in charge of everything. And at the time, I was like pretty uh, impressed with that. I'm like, he must have seen something in me, some, some aptitude, some leadership skills. Looking back at it now, I don't even think that was the case. I think it was revenge. Because, because the, the worst thing that you can do to the rebel is make him the boss because who is he going to complain about, right? But like, like now I'm the guy that's getting the critiques. Now I'm the guy that everyone is grumbling and complaining about. Fast forward, I'm now 45 years old, and um, I plant a church. Now, you need to understand that planting a church is different than pastoring a church. Like, like, if, like if you're a pastoral guy, you go and you find a church that's looking for a pastor, and you just kind of fold into what they're doing. A church planter, he's like, I can do it better. I'll do it my own way. So, so this is honestly my nature. And then you begin to pour into God's word. And what you realize is at the heart of the gospel is this idea of surrender. Giving up of myself for the gospel, for the cause of Jesus Christ. This last Tuesday, um, a friend of mine was in town. I haven't seen him since before COVID, but this guy's known me since I was 16 years old, and he knows me well. In the 40 years that I've known him, we have been family, we have been enemies, we have been competitors, and now we are friends. And as we were getting together, we talked for about three and a half hours. Somewhere in the conversation, he looked at me, started to laugh, and he goes, no one's ever accused you of being submissive. And um, I'm like, you should have been around the last year. Why is the church closed? Why are you requiring us to wear masks? Why are you following executive orders? Like, I, trust me, I've been accused of that too. So as we come to Numbers 12, here's my challenge. You're speaking on a stronghold, which is a rebellious heart. It's a rebellious guy who has to teach on it, and he's speaking to a rebellious people in the midst of a rebellious culture. We live in a day where everyone wants to do whatever they want to do and nobody wants to be told that what they want to do is wrong. That's just the reality of the culture that we find ourselves in at this time in history. So, so what do we do with a passage that addresses, has a stronghold, a rebellious heart? And my, and my challenge today, what I'm going to try to do is walk you through what Scripture says. This is not a message where I want to teach something that the Scripture doesn't teach. It's not a message where I want to do a lot of editorializing. I just want to open up God's Word, emphasize what it emphasizes, and let it speak truth to us. So that's what we're going to attempt to do as we open our way and look at Numbers 12, the big idea this morning, if you're keeping notes, is simply this. A rebellious heart forfeits God's blessing. A rebellious heart forfeits God's blessing. 
There's no tease in the big idea. There's no wondering what I'm going to be talking about. I can't say that any clearer. A rebellious heart forfeits God's blessing. Here's the first point if you're keeping notes. Why do we rebel? Well, at the heart of rebellion is pride. Look at Numbers 12, verses 1 and 2. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he married a Cushite woman. And in verse 2, it says, And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Originally, before I went on vacation, I was planning on teaching through Numbers 12, 13, and 14 this morning because in those three chapters, there's three examples, three different situations where we see rebellion blossom, where we see it take place. In this chapter, Miriam and Aaron are going to rebel, and the core reason they rebel, it's actually jealousy. It's actually envy. They're they're complaining that their brother Moses has a higher status. When you get to chapter 13, it's a different situation. Moses, or the land of Israel, or the nation of Israel comes to the edge of the land of Canaan, and they send in spies to spy out the land, and the spies come back with a good report of the land, but they say, man, the cities are well fortified, the guys are huge, we look like grasshoppers. And the people rebel against the Lord because, well, the motive is fear. They're, they're scared that God won't keep the promises that he's made to the nation. And then at the end of chapter 14, what happens is God says, because you won't go into the land, because you've grumbled and complained and rebelled, out into the wilderness you go. And the nation of Israel says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going to go and attack the Canaanites. And Moses says, don't do it. The Lord won't be with you. And the text is clear in Numbers 14, They go and they attack the Canaanites without Moses and without the Ark of the Covenant, and they get destroyed, smeared, if that's a word, in battle. Even if I took you back a chapter into Numbers 11, when we look at grumbling and complaining, that's actually a form of rebellion. And what they're complaining about in Numbers 11, what they're rebelling against is they're comparing their current situation in the wilderness to the glory days of when they were back in Moses. And they're saying, our current circumstances are not fair. We'd rather have what was in the past. And in doing so, they elevate how things used to be and they miss the blessing that they're enjoying in the moment. So, Throughout this section, Numbers 11, 12, 13, and 14, you see the people rebel over and over and over again. Numbers 11, we deserve better. Number 12, what about, Numbers 12, what about me? Numbers 13, can God be trusted? Numbers 14, I can do it all in my own strength, self-reliance. But rather than develop that in any great length, I'm just going to focus on chapter 12, the rebellion of Miriam and Aaron this morning, because in each case, in each story, be it fear, be it self-reliance, be it jealousy, whatever, at the core of our rebellion is pride. Simply stated, at the heart of our rebellion and our rebellious hearts is pride. Here's the second thing as we develop this. A rebellious spirit distorts perception. Verse 1, let me read it to you again. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. What they're doing is they're speaking against their brother because he's taken a foreign wife. They are attacking Moses' character because they believe that their rebellion against Moses can be justified if they discredit his character, if they disqualify him as a leader. Miriam and Aaron have accused Moses of inappropriate behavior. 
He had married outside the tribe of Israel. And there's two um, undercurrents in this verse that I've got to work our way through slowly so that you understand it. The first undercurrent is legalism. There was no command that Moses broke in. There was no law that he violated that said that he couldn't take a foreign wife. There were warnings. They're saying, if you take a foreign wife, be careful that your heart isn't led astray and you begin to follow foreign gods. But there was no prohibition by God that prevented Moses from marrying a Cushite woman. He wasn't in sin. And maybe if we wanted to give Miriam and Aaron the benefit of the doubt, we could say they were just trying to protect their little brother. They understood that there was a danger in marrying a foreign woman. So what they did is they tried to stop him before he ever got to that point, and they made it wrong to even marry the foreign woman. That's legalism. That's taking a caution and making it a prohibition under the guise of protection. That's what they did, and now it becomes the basis of their criticism. They declared Moses guilty of a crime that he didn't commit. And if they were trying to safeguard Moses, the problem is they safeguarded him in the wrong way by expanding the scope of the law beyond what God had decreed. And by the way, as Christians, we do this all the time. Um, the church that I grew up in, um, no alcohol. No, 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 because there's drunkenness. And if you are warned about drunkenness, then you can avoid it by going nowhere near the ledge. Don't drink. And, and just so you know, Kristen and I don't drink. That, that was just kind of the house rule that we grew up in. Well, why don't we drink? For some very good reasons. Well, one, I don't like the taste. Two, it was expensive when we were young and first got married. And here's a third one, because I'm an obsessive compulsive guy who can drop 128 ounces of Coke a day. Like, like, like I don't want to be drinking Coca-Cola. Don't, don't, don't misinterpret that. Um, <laughs> like, 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 I don't want to be that guy because I'm worried about the temptation. But for me to look at somebody else who has chosen to drink alcohol in moderation and to condemn their character because they don't hold the same conviction to me, that is the very essence of legalism. It happens in entertainment choices. You might choose to do something with your family that we wouldn't choose to do or vice versa as it relates to choices of movies and Netflix and whatever and TVs and all of those things. Listen, you're fine to formulate your own convictions. Where it becomes legalism is when you judge other people within the family of God based off your convictions because they don't hold the same thing. Am, am I, do you believe that this happens all the time in the church? Like, am I, am I clear on this? Can I, can I drive it home a little bit harder? As a follower of Jesus Christ, it's okay to be vaccinated. That's an area of personal liberty. If that's what you choose to do, go ahead. And as a Christian, it's okay to choose not to be vaccinated. But if you choose to be vaccinated, those that choose not to be vaccinated are not idiots. And vice versa. But what we do is we formulate opinions, we make convictions, and then what we do is we hold people up to the arbitrary standard of how we've interpreted things, and I'm telling you, it's dangerous. God's not for it. His heart's against it. That's one of the two undertoes in verse 1. The second one is really a bigger issue today, and the issue that you see in verse 1 is racism. 
Miriam and Aaron do not accuse Moses of drifting away from God. They, they don't say that because you've taken your wife, you are now moving away from God, that you're following idols or foreign gods. Miriam's issue and Aaron's issue are clear in the text. The issue that they had with Moses' wife is the color of her skin. To be a Cushite woman means that you were from Ethiopia, northern Africa. Her skin would have been darker than Miriam and Aaron's and Moses. And the issue that they had was the color of her skin. It's very, very interesting. In the text, we know the name of uh, Moses' first wife. It was Zipporah. She was from Midian. In this text, as the story is told, they never named the wife. She's just that Cushite woman, that Cushite woman, because that's where the attack was. It was based off her ethnicity. It wasn't based off any danger that he would start to follow foreign gods. By the way, Miriam's the instigator of the attack. Aaron gets caught up in it. In the Hebrew, it becomes very clear. It says, Miriam, along with Aaron, she is the leader in the accusations against her brother. And because the text addresses racism, I think I need to touch on racism because it's such a charged topic in our culture. And you need to know that I go into this with a little bit of fear. Could we agree? Because this thing, this issue is blowing up churches. And I'm not woke, but I do think we need to wake up. Okay, there are things going on in our culture. There are ideas. If you've studied these issues of social injustice and systematic racism and, and uh, race theory, hear me. I'm not a proponent of critical race theory because it has some flawed foundations. One of them is it doesn't hold to objective truth. It's your version of reality versus my version of reality. And I don't think there's a lot of, I don't think of truth is subjective based off God's word. It's objective. Like, like there's flaws in the theory. But as we look at our country and as we look at our history, we have to be very, very careful in our hearts that we're not making judgments based off appearances. That's what's at the center of racism, pride. I'm going to make a judgment about another person. And by the way, it's probably the laziest form of pride because you're basing your entire judgment of that person based off their outward appearance, the color of their skin. It's interesting. I've been reading this book by one of my favorite authors, Bill Bryson. He wrote a book called The Body, and I quote from it. He says this, people act as if skin color is a determinant of character when all it is is a reaction to sunlight. And he goes on, he says, how many people have been enslaved or hated or lynched or deprived of fundamental rights through history due to the color of their skin? Now, I'm no doctor, I'm no scientist, but he explains in the book that there are over 120 different genes that, that basically determine how our skin responds to sunlight. But the one gene that is most responsible, that is the primary determinant, that gene is called melanin. And your color and your race is determined by the melanin in your skin. And that melanin lives in a layer of your skin that is so thin, it's less than a millimeter thin, that if you could separate that one layer of skin and you were to look at it, it would be translucent. You'd look right through it. And so much judgment and so many assumptions based off outward appearance. And I think we've at least got to check our heart to say, are these things that we do? Because God has no, you're going to see it in the text. God has no patience for the idea of racism. 
Do we judge people by their appearance? Would you want to be judged by your appearance? So before I was a pastor here, I was attending another church in the area. And if you know me at all, you know that in social settings, I'm pretty awkward. Like, like just walking up to you to have a conversation. That's like my wife will stay next to me at parties so that I don't embarrass myself and, and, and all of that, okay? So, so I walk up to this guy. haven't met him. He's in the foyer. He, he sticks out. He's probably 6'8", young guy, looks very, very athletic. I walk up to him. I'm like, hey, David, I'm David. How are you doing? You visiting? Oh, yeah, I'm visiting. Um, do you play basketball? He goes, no, do you play mini golf? And um, I'm like, okay. <laughs> that, that was good. Like, like, that was a pretty good comeback. And, and, and listen, that's harmless because I'm making an assumption about what his hobby might be based off his physical appearance. Hey, listen, racism is speaking to the character of a person based off his appearance, and God's not pleased. We'll see that as we go through the text. So in in dealing with this issue of a rebellious heart, as we get back to that, I'm going to break this into two sections. The first thing I want to do is I want to give a word to leaders. Just kind of some encouragement, some counsel, some advice to leaders. Because when we deal with a rebellious heart, we've got to deal with how it affects the leader. But then we've also got to deal with if we have the rebellious heart, how are we going to deal with it? Because if you've been a leader and you're dealing with rebellion around you, that's difficult as well. So can I start with just a word from, for leaders as we go through the text? And, and be very, very careful that you don't exclude yourself from this part of the conversation by saying, I'm not a leader. If you're a parent, you're a leader. If you're a small group leader, you're a leader. You say, well, no, I'm, I'm not a leader. Well, well, quite often God puts you in positions of leadership even if you don't feel qualified or if you don't think that that's your strength. And many in this room have leadership responsibilities. Here's the first thing that I would ask you to do as a leader. Understand meekness. Understand meekness. Verse 3. Now, the man Moses was very meek more than all people who are on the face of the earth. This verse caught me off guard because we're dealing with Miriam and Aaron's rebellion. So why does God throw this verse in that Moses is the most meek man on the face of the earth? Why does Jesus, when he starts his public ministry in his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded in Matthew 5, why the third sentence in his message does he say, blessed are the meek? they shall inherit the earth. And then you got to consider a couple things about Moses. If he's the meekest man in the world, you need to understand the, his very existence is based off rebellion. When he was born, the Pharaoh had said, kill all Israelite kids, but his family had defied the order. They had kept him alive, and he ended up in Pharaoh's household. And growing up in Pharaoh's household, as he became an adult, as, a, uh, as an Israeli or, or an Israelite looking at the Egyptians, he sees an Egyptian poorly treating an Israelite slave, and as a young man, he kills him. Takes matters into his own hands, says, I'll deal with this. Kills the guy, buries him, and then has to flee into the wilderness for 40 years. That's the meekest guy? And as you read through Exodus and the book of Numbers, I could just take you back a few verses into Numbers 11. He had no problem complaining to God. In Numbers 11, he goes to God and he says, listen, I am so tired of this nation that you've asked me to lead. If you make me lead them like one more day, I'd rather have you kill me than do this. So how is this guy considered the meekest guy that ever lived? 
And, and, and you got to understand what the word means. In some translations, this word meekness is translated gentle. I, I've heard meekness described as being basically um, strength restrained. Like you have the ability to take something into your own hands, but you have a meekness that you don't seek your own revenge. Well, in the Hebrew, this word meekness is very, very interesting because the root word that is translated here, meekness, means that he is oppressed, that he is afflicted, that he is brought low. Meekness cannot be displayed on a calm sea. Meekness can only be revealed when you're going through a storm. We know that Jesus was meek because when he went through intense persecution, he stayed quiet. He entrusted himself to the Lord. We know that as a church, we exhibit meekness only when the church is under some sort of attack or persecution. It's in our response to opposition. It's the only time that meekness can be displayed. And as a leader, you need to expect that if God has called you to be meek, that implies that there's going to be an undercurrent to your leadership that means there's going to be opposition, there's going to be rebellion. It's just in the heart of man. So don't be surprised when you're dealing with rebellion as a leader. Here's the second thing. Not only do we have to understand meekness, we need to understand the attack. As a leader, the rebellion that you deal with, this rebellious heart that you are forced to show meekness as a contrast to, it's not a sniper shot from 500 yards that is critiquing you. It's usually not an outside critique by someone you are distantly acquainted with, a critic from afar. It's usually some from somebody very, very close. It's not a sniper shot. It's a twist of the knife. In Numbers 12, the people that are leading the revolt against Moses are his older brother and sister. They've been with him the whole time. They have co-leadership responsibilities for the nation of Israel. At this time in, nation, in Israel's history, they have three leaders. They're called prophets. Moses is referred to as a prophet. Aaron is referred to as a prophet. And Miriam is referred to as a prophetess. These are the leaders of the nation of Israel. So the attack that comes against Moses, man, it, it, it hurts. It's his family. It's his closest confidants. It's the ones who are there to carry the load. And you will see this over and over throughout Scripture. Who throws Joseph into a well and sells him into slavery in Egypt? Oh, he has brothers. Who deceives Samson? Oh, yeah, it was Delilah, right? And Jesus, when he's betrayed, it was the disciple, right? How was he betrayed? With a kiss. See, see, this is the nature of leadership. The attack usually comes from up close. As a parent, when your kids rebel, when, when, you, when you walk around the corner and your kids don't know you're there and you overhear your kids telling their friends what idiot parents they have. See, see those are the ones that hurt. When your spouse is dishonest, when your best friend deserts you, See, 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 this goes with the territory of leadership. Understand meekness, understand attack, or the attack. And then here's the important thing, verse four. Understand your defense. 
Verse 4, and suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, come out here, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. So God's going to deal with this problem of rebellion, so he calls the three of them, his three leaders, his three prophets, out to the tent of meeting, and then he says, hey, by the way, Aaron, Miriam, now you guys come the rest of the way. I'm dealing with you two directly. And if you're a leader who is dealing with rebellion, you are called to cloak your actions in meekness. And here's the best advice that I can give you. Let the Lord defend your character. Let the Lord defend your character. How much time could Moses have wasted trying to defend himself? How much time could he have wasted trying to stop the revolt in his own strength? He could have called meetings. He could have hired a PR agent. Like, like, what are the things that he could have done to defend himself? But the truth is, your best defense against a a character assault is always in the hands of the Lord. Let the Lord be your defense. And in this case, in Numbers 12, the Lord shows up. So three words to leaders, understand meekness, understand the attack, and then understand the defense. But let's get back to the main thing, our rebellious hearts. Here's a reminder to the rebellion, to the rebellious. Number one, God chooses our sanctification path. Verse six, here's what the Lord says to Miriam and Aaron. God says, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Verse 8, so when I speak with Moses, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? What God is explaining here is that though all three of them are prophets, Moses is the lead. And God has chosen to deal with Moses in a way that is different than he's choosing to deal with Miriam and Aaron. As a follower of Jesus Christ, God chooses the circumstances, the events, and the people that come into our life. And he does it for his glory, our good, on his terms. Do you believe that? you trust it? Or do you always have to have approval rights? Is it only when you agree? There are things that God is bringing into your sanctification journey. Man, that's a big word. Let me break that down. He's making you more like Jesus. He's promised that he will do that. He will not leave. He will not abandon his cause in your life to make you more like Jesus if you've chosen to be a follower of him. And there are things that he has to bring into your life that are different than what he has to bring into my life. Because I lean towards rebellion, I can walk you through over and over, time and time again, how he's had to bring me low. I'm a pretty logical guy. I'm a pretty linear thinker. So God surrounds me with absurdity. It's just real. I get it. I think it's kind of funny, but I'm usually not laughing. Okay? Some of you, you're, you're so self-reliant. You're so, you're control freaks. Does it surprise you when God brings a circumstance into your life where you have no control? 
Like, like this is what God is doing. But in the moments, in the process of our sanctification, in our circumstances, in the things that we're going through, what we begin to believe is we're being treated unfairly compared to somebody else who we've already judged that we're better than them to begin with. So why is their path so easy when ours is so hard? And I'm just going to tell you, that's more perception than reality. We tend to look at other people's circumstances and we say, man, if we had what that guy had, then my life would be so much easier and I'm stuck here in a ditch. And we um, elevate their circumstances and say, man, they've got it so easy. And then we look at our situation and we make it even worse than it sometimes is. And I'm not saying the trials don't exist, just don't think that they don't exist for everyone. I have to laugh if you look at our culture just in the last year or two. Um, some of the most successful men, the, the, the titans of industry in, in our country, uh, Jeff Bezos. Man, if I owned Amazon, life would be awesome. Bill Gates, if I had that guy's money, life would be awesome. Except we read about their personal lives, we read about their marriages, they're in shambles, there's not a lot of love in their close relationships. I would not be surprised that if you knew those men, they, they might not envy you, <laughs> not having to carry so much weight. Moses just said that the earlier chapter. He's like, take the leadership away from me. Who needs it? Miriam and Aaron are saying, we should have his position. Moses is like, get me out of here. You can have it. Henry Ford was quoted after he'd made his millions, after he'd been so successful, he was quoted. He said, I was happier as a boy working in a mechanic shop. See, this rebellion that comes out of a jealous or envious heart, it downplays everything that is positive about our situation and emphasizes the negative while doing the exact opposite when we consider an, the other person's situation. The, the, the person in the room who is single and just can't wait till they're married is contrasted with the guy who's married and wishes he had the freedoms that he had back when he was single. The, the, the person that is, is in a... Um, what they consider an insignificant job, wish that they had more authority, wish that they bore more weight. But the guy that's CEO or at the top of the company is saying, man, I'd be way more happier if I just gave up all this responsibility and went down. It is our nature to grumble and complain, believing that somebody else's sanctification path would better suit us. Hey, listen, God is working through your circumstances whether you believe it or not, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, for his glory, for your good, but on his terms. Is that something that you're going to rebel against? Here's the second thing. I could show this from all four chapters. Verse 9, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Choosing the path of rebellion is always painful. Choosing the path of rebellion is always painful. Even in that verse, like, and the anger of the Lord was kindled, so he's mad at him, and he departed. I'm not even sure which one's worse. What's worse, to lose the presence of the Lord or for him to be angry at you? Both of these are the consequences of Miriam and Aaron's rebellion. And then verse 10, when the, the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. Okay, please don't miss the irony here. Miriam grumbled and complained about Moses because he'd married a woman with black skin. God, in punishing Miriam, gives her skin that is white as snow. She is now leprous. 
Miriam's accusation was, Moses has no business being with that woman. God's judgment against her is, now you have leprosy and you are put outside the camp away from the community of God's people. Don't miss how God feels about racism on the basis of what he just did. Choosing the path of rebellion is painful. Numbers 13, we won't enter the land. We're scared of the people. Out into the wilderness you go. Grumbling and complaining. God, I wish things were like the old days. I don't like where I currently am. What we want is meat to eat. Here you go, meat to eat till it comes out your nostrils and you're sick of it. Rebellion is always painful. Then here's a third thing. God restores the rebellious heart through repentance. Look at the end of verse 10. It says, and Aaron turned towards Miriam and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let not her be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. Okay, these verses are important because in these verses, what you get is an incredible glimpse of the gospel. Miriam, because she was the leader, is now suffering the consequences of her rebellion. Aaron looks at what's going on with his sister, and it's very interesting to me, he doesn't appeal to God for mercy. Who does he go to? He goes to Moses. Well, that tells you something in the text. God has said, Moses is my man. He's the main leader. He's the one I speak to face to face. And there is a change of heart on Aaron's. He's heard what the Lord says. And he goes to his younger brother, Moses, and he says, hey, my Lord, I need you to go talk to God on our behalf. So we do see a change of heart in the way that he is treating Moses. But more importantly, in this moment, when he is feeling the anger and the separation of the Lord, he says, I need an advocate. I, I, I need a mediator. I need someone to stand between me and God and, be, and beg and plead for mercy on my behalf. And Moses has standing with God because they talk face to face. So he says, hey, Moses, would you plead our case? So, so, so what's the key to dealing with a rebellious heart if you find that you're the one that's always questioning, always frustrated, always fighting against authority? Here's one of the things that you need to do. You need to recognize that it's sin. And you need to repent. And you need to confess. And here's the wonderful news in this. We have an advocate. We have a mediator. We have someone who stands between us and, our, and a holy God, a creator God, our heavenly father. John 2 verse 1, 1 John 2 verse 1 says it this way. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Then it goes on and says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation, we don't use that a ton. Let me explain what it means. It actually has two parts. When it says that Christ is a propitiation for our sins, the first thing that he does is he appeases God's wrath. He puts an end to God's wrath towards us. And the second thing he does is he brings reconciliation between separated parties. The book of Hebrews will argue over and over again that Jesus Christ is a better advocate and a better mediator than Moses. And here's why. Because in the rest of the chapter, I won't take the time to develop it, but Moses does exactly what Aaron asked him to do. He appeals to God and God says, yes, I will spare her life, but she's going to bear her reproach for seven days. 
When we come to God and seek forgiveness and say, listen, we've got a rebellious heart. Lord, this is an issue. This is a stronghold that needs to be addressed in my life. When we come to the Lord, we bring that to him. And not only does he um, appease God's wrath, we don't even bear the shame of those choices anymore because he reconciles us to God. There's no seven-day waiting period. There's no, because Miriam had to bear her wrath for seven days. God bears, or Jesus bears God's wrath against us in our place in what he accomplished on the cross. This whole series of dealing with strongholds is calling us as a church to make a choice. You cannot choose your circumstances, but you can choose your attitudes. You can choose your attitudes. And if you find yourself in this season just grinding your teeth and struggling to submit and struggling with rebellion and you look back over the course of your life like I can look over the course of my life and say, this thing has brought continual pain, you can make a choice today. You can repent because you have an advocate and a mediator that stands between you and a holy God and is born the wrath and is reconciled, he's removed the distance. The only question is how will we respond, right? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, difficult passages. I thank you for um, what you were doing in lives and hearts in this season. I thank you for the baptisms last night. I thank you for the baptisms this morning in Grand Haven. And I would just say, Father, we need you. Father, teach us to trust you. Father, teach us to elevate the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, above all things, even our own desires, our own wants. Father, give us courage in a, in a culture that struggles to hear truth. Father, give us courage. It's in your name we pray. Amen.